becomes by season two, a lonely little team up on the moon. And the world gets a little bigger and a little brighter. Tune into our conversation about the breadth and depth of sci-fi narration, love as a linchpin to dystopias, and the place of climate change in imagining the future with DJ Silvis of Moonbase Theta, out, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins. Today, join us for our interview with DJ Silvis, creator of the fiction podcast Moonbase Theta Out, which we featured last week. DJ Silvis, based in Ontario, Canada, got their artistic start in stage theater with their company Monkey Man Productions. They received positive, independent attention for their experimental work, like The Simeon Showcase, which featured four short plays around geeky contemporary themes like LARPing and video games, and like Uncharted Zones, another foreplay showcase which traces human connections between the unknown and unexpected in a journey through space and with space. Moonbase Theta Out, as you'll learn, started as a project for the production company to produce artwork that was cheaper than renting out a theater for an audience. The company already excelled in mini-plays as a way to convey bigger thematic arcs and messages, which leads quite naturally to the micro-fiction format the podcast uses in its first season. Silvis will describe the ways that the story branched out in future seasons, now boasting a large cast and longer episodes in the half-hour range. Before we continue, the Radio Drama Revival team wants to indicate our unwavering support for the colonized and imprisoned people of Palestine. We want to ask you to learn more about the reality of what has been and is currently happening in Palestine at decolonizepalestine.com. Please consider donating to the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, a fund that works directly in Palestine to address children's medical needs and humanitarian assistance. You can donate at pcrf.net or using the link in our episode description. Please be aware that this interview discusses the pandemic, isolation, climate change, and colonization. So, Deej, thank you so much for coming on to Radio Drama Revival. We're really excited to get to talk to you about Moonbase Theta Out and all of the great topics that this podcast covers. Thanks. I'm really honored to be here. Um, so you've you've been working in theater uh, and theater production in Ontario for 25 years and moved into audio production in like 2018. And I know that you did that partially because producing podcasts was cheaper than producing live theater was for you at the time. You mentioned this in a, an interview um, with the voice of Roger Lehman Kessler um, on the After Dark Lovecraft show. Um, so tell me, tell me about that transition. What was it like shifting your theatrical knowledge from the stage to audio only? It was <laughs> a little bit rough. Unfortunately, we, um, <laughs> we really came into this sort of, um, ass backwards. We started out, um, we had done Monkey Man Productions had been a theater company for almost 10 years at that point. Well, about 10 years, cause we started in 2008 and, um, 
yeah, it is. We had sort of hit that point where the founding other founding members had sort of drifted off. The people we generally worked with had sort of started finding their own places and their own like paths that differed. And yeah, and financially, we were sort of <laughs> at the point where things had gotten it's gone a bit dry. And this was just, I mean, sort of a new venue to look into something that didn't quite take the biggest thing. I mean, the biggest thing for all of theater, but particularly in Toronto, is um, being able to afford spaces. And <laughs> that has gotten mm-hmm. like worse and worse through the years, of course. This past year, it's been terrible. But, um, <laughs> but, but I bet. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> but yeah. So we had gotten to the point where we really like we wanted to keep doing theater. We couldn't afford to keep doing theater. And so we were looking at other options. I was pretty much the last. Um, founding member who was still like in the game and wanted to keep doing things. And so I was looking at this as an option and we spent a good six months developing a show that'll probably never come to pass, <laughs> which was going to be a full, <laughs> full cast, full like adventure series, like fantasy adventure series, um, Whimsy and Whiffles World's Wonder, which was going to be my time, not well, time traveling, my um, adventure lesbians with their pet pot belly pig, Leroy. It was a fun little show, but it was also pretty massive and was going to be pretty massive to produce. So I thought, well, okay, while we're trying to make that come together, and of course, none of us had any experience, I'll write a little one-person thing, do like maybe 20 like short episodes of that, find somebody to knock it out, and by the time that we get that done, we'll be ready to jump into the bigger thing. And that's where Moonbase came from. We sort of, <laughs> and again, I sort of like, I didn't know what I was doing. I knew um, audio fiction existed because of other like companies in the area who had done it or had moved into it, but I didn't know the community at all. And that was sort of my big mistake (laughs) coming into it. But yeah, so I wrote the entire season pretty quickly. I mean, they're short episodes. They're like five or six minutes episodes. Wrote the entire thing pretty quickly. I talked to Lehman. Lehman is someone who had worked with us since the beginning. Lehman was in our very first production back in 2008. That was how I met him. And um, so... I pitched it to him. He had been he was living in Ohio by that point. But of course, the great thing about this art form is you can keep working with people wherever they move to. And yeah, so we sort of decided to give it a shot and we thought, okay, it'll be a fun little thing that'll take us a month or two to produce and then we'll never have to worry about it again. (laughs) Uh, What uh, what from your theatrical experience, um, what? helped you with creating Moonbase Theta out and what actually impeded your creation of the first season that you had to like work around or figure out uh, the the new way to do it? Well, some of the thing that certainly carried over was um, the way that, that Lehman and I developed the scripts in that we rehearsed and workshopped the scripts. I know that, um, and this is again, something where we sort of adjusted a little bit over the years. But every episode, as I wrote it, I would send it to him. He would send me back a draft recording just so I could hear it in his voice and just sort of a rehearsal recording. And then I would revise based on that. And um, it was really like going into like rehearsals for a play and just reworking the script and getting a chance to play it back and forth together. So I think that's something that carried over very 
I mean, pretty smoothly. And again, because I was only working with one person, <laughs> it was easier. <laughs> like we've had more and more problems in successive seasons as we added people trying to get that rehearsal time together. But um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. certainly that I think worked well and that carried over well the um, the writing and the rehearsal process. The production, of course, is a lot different. And I had to pretty much teach that to myself. By that point, we had originally, when we started developing the first show, I had some of the other um, previous company members working with me. They had, again, sort of in the intervening time, found their own paths. And I pretty much produced the entire first season myself. So I did all of the editing, all of the, um, well, there isn't much sound design. It's pretty much just Roger singing a cubicle. But so learning that was a big, a big curve for myself, like teaching it all to myself from YouTube videos and stuff. And, but kind of fascinating too, like finding out that places where maybe Lehman hadn't taken quite the pause I originally intended. <laughs> all I had to do was just insert another second. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but that was yeah, good. You, uh, yeah, you. <laughs> so as you talked about with with Moonbase Theta out, um, the first two seasons are are my, the first season is microfiction, right? The the uh, the first season everything is under ten minutes, including yeah. the credits. So what made what was it about the micro format that was the best way to tell the story of the Theta Moonbase? I think. Um... I had started out just sort of wanting to stretch it around. And again, this is sort of a young audio fiction thing to think that you have to structure your show so that the audio format makes sense. So so the the people have a clear reason for why they're able to listen to this. And so Mm -hmm. doing these broadcasts, I was like, okay, so if he's sending back reports, they're probably not going to be like long weekly weekly reports they know what's going on um so it's just going to be him like giving a few pertinent details and we can build this up bit by bit and i kind of like um one of the things that's really important to me in storytelling is revealing details naturally and so i was like okay so we're not going to do like we're not going to fill in like backstory we're not going to make the world building really obvious we're gonna give them a little taste here and there and so we're gonna give them a little bite each week and say okay this happened this happened oh by the way there's this huge thing in the background that you'll never hear about again um, <laughs> but, but yeah so it made sense to me that these would be short um short um messages back to back to base like you're not you're not you're not sending a detailed report every week you're sending a memo so Mm-hmm. It just sort of matched up with that. And then, of course, um, again, sort of as an introduction to the genre, it was easier for us to do that. And for me to get Lehman available to do that, Lehman's a pretty busy man between doing <laughs> Ask Lovecraft and being mayor of a small Ohio town and all of his other work. <laughs> Wait, back up. Lehman is a mayor of a town? Lehman is the mayor of Gambier, Ohio. Which is where Kenyon College is, and um, which is where he went to How university did I back not in the day. Know this? How about that? Yeah. All right. Well. So that actually okay. happened. I think it might have been 2019. So it might have been after the show started. But it was something he was already pretty involved in local politics by that point, and that was taking mm-hmm. up a lot of his time too. He's also um, primary caregiver to his two kids. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Between all of that, well, I, he's he has gotten harder and harder to get a hold of as we keep doing the yeah, show. Yeah, I bet. But even in the first uh, season, it was easier if I gave him a five-minute chunk than an hour. Right, than like a, an hour or something, or ha- even half an hour. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, good job, Lehman, juggling so many different things. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like 
Lehman's acting as, as Roger is one of my very favorite um, uh, voice acting for like a, a single narrator audio log kind of show. I think that Lehman does an incredible job um, at at all of the different emotions that are necessary throughout the piece. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah good I, job, Lehman. I can't imagine doing it without him. I can't imagine who else could have taken that role, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, Sometimes you just yeah. have that person. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because most shows like this start out with the with the with the writer playing that part. Mm. But I knew when I started putting it together, there was no way I could have done that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, as we like, right, like this first season is entirely voiced by by Roger. But the second season features the crew and his husband um, that he references in his logs tracking the same period of the 20 week shutdown. What was at the root of the decision for the plot and focus of season two? Well, part of it was because we never intended to have a season two. <laughs> that was honestly um, valid. <laughs> well, that was, I mean, and that was seriously it. When I, when we came to, it was around like three quarters of the way through the season when we were starting to get more attention that we started talking about, oh, well, do we want to keep trying to tell this story? And I couldn't imagine going from the story we'd told to what happens next in the future without knowing these other characters better. Like you couldn't go into, you couldn't have jumped to, it, was, it wasn't until season three that we started moving forward and you couldn't have jumped to that without knowing the other characters. There's no way it, it would have worked. And mm-hmm. so we took these characters that he had been talking about the whole time in season one, these other people who are still awake and gave each of them voices and gave them, fleshed them out and yeah. cast people, which was quite interesting at that time because again, I wasn't that, connected to the community and having written mm-hmm. very specific characters of very specific um, gender and ethnic identities and then needing to cast to that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was interesting. I think you did a great job with that, right? I think that, you know, I know that um, your production, your theater production company has always been very, very focused on making sure that you cast appropriately and have genuinely inclusive um casts as regards to things like uh queer and trans characters fat characters different ethnicities and and racial diversity and things like this um so uh that's great um actually i have like a a related like question to this um tell me a little bit about your thoughts in particular on um the the depiction and casting and prevalence slash lack thereof of fat characters in audio fiction because i have a lot of thoughts about this as a a fat person um (laughs) i really want to hear about about your thoughts um yeah i don't think it's like an area that hasn't really been like broached much at all yet and i'll be i'll Mm -hmm. be honest like i haven't managed to do it well yet either it was something that i had written into um alex's backstory is that alex is um a heavy set guy and has sort of some health stuff associated with that that we that we mention every every now and then during the show but um is very like that was written originally as part of his character but there was no way when i was trying to cast cast a brazilian actor for the show and definitely a non-white brazilian actor that i was also going to say oh by the way i need you to be fat but um but it is it's something that I want to do better at and I want to see mm-hmm. more of, but mm-hmm. it's sort of, it's sort of right now is the last representation on the list. 
So mm-hmm. when people mm-hmm. are saying, okay, I want to cast a queer, Asian, non-binary character, all of those are going to be things you look for before you say, oh, and I want them to be fat. Yeah. And it's In not, general, that's yeah. very true. And it's not that if those are aspects that you're like going to be talking about more in the show, then I mean, sure, that's more important. But I would like to see shows and I'm trying to think about as I write things for the future where there are characters who are fat and written to be fat. Um, Jen Ponton, who works with us and does the voice of, Tom, of Tumnus, is an amazing as far as in a, a, as in, sorry, in addition to being just an amazing actor, is an amazing fat actor, an amazing fat activist. And yes. her work has been huge for me. The um, the way that we're developing Tumnus as we move as, as we keep moving forward is there's I don't want to be spoilery, but there's some stuff that we're getting into about her mm-hmm. relationship as an artificial consciousness with having a body and the way that mm-hmm. people think about bodies as, as, at all that is going to start delving into some of that. That makes me very excited. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's something um, that, yeah. I mean, I want to see more of and I'm trying to think of ways to put it in my work more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I also want to see to see more of it. Um, and listen, if anyone out there is looking for a fat voice actor, just, you know, hit me up. <laughs> um, Seriously. I mean, <laughs> there are so many great shows out there now that are giving like so many other experiences. Like you've got mm-hmm. shows giving amazing disabled experiences. Now you've got shows giving amazing like experiences of various like minorities that we haven't thought about yet. There needs to be a good show that deals with the fat experience out there. And I hope that when it happens that I can be involved somehow. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, we're waiting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so as, as the audience for, um, for MTO gets, goes deeper into the countdown, Roger, right, gets more tense and more desperate to know what's happening on earth and to hear from, from Alexandra um, among a lot of other problems on the station. So, so what, What is it about isolation and distance that creates so much horror and yet so much love that we hear in Roger's voice for Alexander? Yeah, I think a lot of that came out of and a lot of the way that I sort of extrapolated that to the moon and to sort of like ways we've dealt with. I mean, see isolation in science fiction a lot that way where one person is in space and they're dealing with being so far from Earth was for me, it immediately matched up in my head with long distance relationships, which Mm -hmm. I have almost always wound up in one way or another. My my wife and I originally met when she was literally on the other side of the planet. She's from Australia and (laughs) we originally met online and didn't (laughs) and thought, oh, well, I'll never get to see this person. So what the hell? But yeah, just sort Mm -hmm. of. The loneliness of that, the um, angst of reaching out and knowing that this person you care about is so far away and not knowing when that'll change, not knowing how it'll change, was a huge part of, like, what what Roger was going through on that. Like, I think all of the rest of the stuff that he's dealing with is, <laughs> in his head, secondary to that and is still secondary to that mm-hmm. now as we move forward, that all he really cares about is getting back there. Yeah. And I think that's something that I see in um, 
like shows that have have similar experiences to that that um like i'm thinking about station blue where station blue mm. is of course like classic isolationist horror but what really got to me about it is when he's talking about this person he cares about who is so far away and he doesn't know he's gonna get to see again and like that was what really was not not necessarily the scariest thing about it but the thing that touched me deepest because i'm like that's what would fuck me up about it yeah no absolutely big same (laughs) (laughs) it was great to um when we finally got to season two to be able to explore that from alex's side as well because Mm -hmm. you see the one thing about seeing that all through um through roger's point of view in season one is you get the idea that roger is this sort of like pure blameless wonder like <laughs> like perfect perfect uh, husband who is just up there waiting and we find out in season Absolute. two that, that things were a bit yeah. rockier that there there were things they didn't really like mm-hmm. talk about or work out very well before he left and it was really nice to sort of like experience that from the other end too because that's one of the things too about the distance thing is that every time you screw something up you're like oh my god this is the end Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I can't be there to sit next to this person and talk it out. Absolutely. No, yeah. Um, well, first of all, Roger is my perfect cinnamon roll. <laughs> <laughs> and he is. I mean, I'm not. It's, it's not that he isn't, but we also find out that he was no, yeah. kind of for a while a shitty husband. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, no, yeah, the, the, I think that the, the, in the first season we get those, um, those like hints that, that not everything was okay um, before he left. Um, and before we, we transition into talking a little bit more about Roger's relationship with, with Alexander, which you have brought up, just brought up a question that I like wrote for you. Um, <laughs> has the pandemic influenced your thoughts on, on isolation and distance and all these things then, or changed them from what they were before, like when you initially wrote this podcast? I think... I don't know how much it's um, bled into the show yet, but I feel like my personal experience has been that I'm really feeling just how much I didn't feed my like connections in my relationships that are close to me right now. Mm-hmm. That because now, of course, everyone feels long distance. Like people that I used to have coffee with once a week feel long distance, but realizing how much energy I've put into things that like are far from me and things that will probably never be part of my immediate community and how much even just like it comes like politically and stuff i've become much more politically aware in the past couple years and of course like huge things happen in the world at that same time too but just realizing how much of it touches me nearby and i wasn't really like putting my time or energy into that and so yeah i think that's definitely like affected me Creatively, it's affected me emotionally, and I think it's going to change some of the ways that I, like, focus my life afterwards. Absolutely. Um, so let's let's talk about what I think of as the linchpin for season one, right? Which is Roger and Alexander's painful, intense, really beautiful relationship. Um <laughs> So, the, yeah, as we as you mentioned, they had unresolved marriage problems before Roger left Earth, right? Exacerbated by by his placement on the moon. Tell me what went into building their love as the point upon which so much of this show revolves. 
I think that's what I always try to do. I mean, that's what I've always tried to do in um, theater I write as well, is taking these strange things, these sort of like weird little genre stories and finding like the most human part of the core of them. So that relationship didn't start out as the center of it for me. But as I started writing, I was like, I can't. I can't tell this story without having some sort of like real connection for him. Obviously he doesn't care much about like the job he has. He doesn't care much about like he wanted to be there, but he doesn't care much like care much about the job the way it's turned out to be. But um, this relationship is the one thing that makes sense to him. And the one thing that makes sense to Alex mm -hmm. and bit by bit, as I, like, as I put that very first note in the very first episode and I was like, OK, so he's going to say a little I love you at the end. It'll be sweet. It'll be nice. And they'll just like touch on that every once in a while. And bit by bit, that became more and more of the of the story to me, because in the end, like, I mean, and this is the thing that I always hear, too, from most of my most of my audience reaction is on Tumblr, which is hilarious. Um, like, I think it's great that most of my audience is like these queer kids who are like in their like teens or 20s on Tumblr set mate running notes about about the show and, the, and what they always care about is like <laughs> whether or not Roger and Alex are going to get back together and <laughs> it is it does that to me too but I'm just like <laughs> that's slowly how it happened to me too Radio Drama Revival has been showcasing fiction podcasts and elevating the voices of their creators for 13 years if you've enjoyed this show, if it's helped you or healed you or done the unforgivable and increased your episode queue, there are a couple of ways to support our continued existence. First, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. We have a special Discord server for all our patrons, where we organize monthly meetups with listening parties, silly and informative PowerPoint presentations on podcasting, and more. Second, you can share a message with the rest of Radio Drama Revival's audience on our ticker tape slot. For a small fee, I'll read your message. And they can be a birthday card, a quick podcast advert, a casting announcement. Whatever you have that needs an audience like this one. You can learn more at radiodramarevival.com slash ticker tape. So let's, um, let me ask just like a, a little like, um, like a scripting question, I guess. So Roger's reports use... Uh, they, them pronouns for all of the crew, even though as we later learn, their pronouns are not all they, them. Um, I love this choice. It feels like a way to grapple with some of the gender disparity in the workplace that we deal with in real life. Um, so what made you decide to use they, them pronouns in this particular fashion for season one? Honestly, some of it was because I was still learning. I mm -hmm. was in the process it's over the course of the show, I have um, personally sort of discovered and come out as um, non-binary myself and sort of gone through an evolution of various like stages of that, where at this point I feel myself, I, I personally only use um, they, them pronouns now. I used to think of myself as more genderqueer. Now I feel like I'm sort of like outside that altogether. I'm sort of agender. Um, but when I first started the show... I was still thinking of myself as um, cis male, but I occasionally used um, they pronouns because I felt like it was an important thing to foster, an important thing to encourage people to use. And so I wrote the show and I'm like, well, this is going to be the future. Let's talk about a future where they use they them pronouns for everything is the default. And 
it was okay. Like, I think that was a that was a decent choice to make, especially where I was with things at the time. But I mm-hmm. realized as I went into season two and as I was going to start telling the personal stories of these people that it wasn't really fair to say, oh, okay, everyone has to default to they, them at all times, no mm-hmm. matter what. I felt like mm-hmm. that simplified mm-hmm. it too much. And so I changed that to a consortium dictate where like cor- the, the corporate mm-hmm. guideline is that you have to use they, them for everyone. But then, obviously, when people are talking among themselves, they use whatever is most appropriate for who they are. So, I actually, when I when I came out, when I came to that decision too, I posted, I wrote an essay and posted on our website and um, shared it around our social media, exp- explaining how that had happened. I wanted people to understand the journey that I had gone through with that because people still find the show, and one of the reasons that they're interested in the show and excited about the show is because of. Um, the fact that we have non-binary people and the fact that we use um, other pronouns, we use neo-pronouns and stuff in the mm-hmm. later seasons. Um, but I wanted to be upfront and be honest about the journey I went through to get there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, There's. I think that um, one of the things that we don't talk about enough in um, – in fiction writing in general, but especially in audio fiction, is the fact that a lot of queer people discover that they're queer because of what they're writing. Um, and and that's that's OK. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, we are seeing in like the, the fiction, like publishing industry, we're seeing a lot of. We're seeing a lot of. Um, uh, this uh, this concept of like oh well you have to be out in order to be like own voices yeah I was just thinking um, about that yeah <laughs> right there's like a there were, there have been a couple of authors now who have talked about these publishing companies that refused like didn't give them deals or or rejected a manuscript because they uh, in one instance because they were like oh well you're straight and this you need to like talk to people about the LGBTQ representation and so to make sure you don't misrepresent them except this author is bisexual yeah. Um, <laughs> And and honestly, like my knee jerk reaction would probably have gone that way, too, until I like people talked about it and I thought about it because I, of course, want to hear people like queer people telling queer stories. And I God knows, like we all want to foster that. But like realizing that that can be part of the way that someone works their way into understanding. Yeah. Or the fact that like someone may not be safe to. Um, come out personally, but they can, they're, it's safe enough for them to like tell these stories. Yeah. I mean, um, I've, I've worked with actors yeah. who like privately like express to me that they're queer or non binary, but they can't have me put that in their bio. So, mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. This stuff's complicated, y'all. Yeah. This is, so complicated. And they're still queer <laughs> actors. They're still playing queer characters. Let's let's talk about um, the, the premise here of of the show. The whole premise, right, is the shutdown of a series of moon bases and stations. And, and Theta is the last one. And of course, in our real world, we have space stations. We've witnessed the creation of the, the Space Navy or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, space plotting force. for <laughs> Space Force. Yeah. God, let me die. Um, <laughs> Uh, plotting for how to settle on Mars, right? Um, it's the beginning of what we all knew was coming, right? The colonization of space. Yeah. Um, I would love to know what your thoughts are on our general societal obsession with colonizing space and what of these thoughts made it into um, Moonbase Theta out. Yeah, I think that 
a lot of it, and I know that you've sort of mentioned too that we were going to talk about the sort of capitalized capitalist capitalization <laughs> of stuff of <laughs> the world and stuff. Um, and that's part of what really went into it for me is that when I grew up, like in like when most of us grew up, it was all like NASA and it was all like, oh, the government is putting money into this bold experiment to allow us to take the next steps into the universe and discover and, and discover and like share this with the world. And now it's a few really rich people who want to become more rich and mm-hmm. just see that as another way to do it. And so a lot of what I did in trying to think about because I didn't want to go for a far future with Moonbase, I wanted to go like it's like 70 years in the future. I wanted to just extrapolate things that I see that I saw happening and maybe make it a little bit cartoonish because I mean, I don't think I don't really expect us to devolve into city states in the next few decades, but <laughs> it's sort of like I sort of wanted to wanted to look at the world becoming that where I mean, we're already like mostly controlled more by corporate interests than governmental interests at this point. And I definitely wanted to look at a moon system where that – I mean a space space system where that had happened as well, where the reason for putting them up there is more about like mining and about like making money than the pure knowledge, pure exploration. And in fact, that's as far as we've gone too. Like in my future, we haven't bothered to go to Mars yet because Mars isn't this profitable. We haven't bothered to like go further out into space yet because that's not as profitable. We're still like – I talk about um, one of my other sort of inside jokes of um, of Moonbase is that is that Canada has been raised to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> no, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the idea just being that eventually, as corporation took over more, that there are huge chunks of the planet that have just been like stripped bare and just left to rot and Canada's one of those. But so I kind of thought of that as the moon too. Like they're still in the process of wringing every last drop of value they can out of the moon. Until they do that, they're not going to bother to go further out. Uh, this like colonization slash militarization of space that we are now witnessing in our, in our 2021 hellscape um, is uh Right, is something that, that we predicted would happen and not just predicted, but knew would happen once we had the technology, right? And, and it shows up in in, in science fiction, um, you know, <laughs> since science fiction was kind of, kind of it was like a thing, right? Um, and one of the things about science fiction in terms of, of space that I always find really interesting is the details um, that go into it, into how it works, how it all works, either... Um, space tech or processes or whatever, right? Um, and the moon-based shutdown process and and design that you made here is v- quite detailed, chaotic, understandably so. Um, <laughs> what uh, what helped you figure this all out? Um, well, I mean. Like I said, I was big into like the sort of moon colonization literature that was basically like a huge sci-fi genre of itself when I was a kid. But mm-hmm. I sort of took that and I was like the thing that they always assumed back in like the 60s and 70s about when we got to the moon was that we were going to create a society up there. And I was like, I don't think – Anybody cares about creating a society, even on Earth right now. I think they just want to, like, set up little stations where mm-hmm. they can 
get as much money out of it as they can and then move on. So, but I, I did like, as far as the tech and stuff, I did a lot of research. I still do like huge amounts of research that never show up in the writing, which frustrates me to no end. <laughs> but, um, but I did, I, I did a lot of like looking at how these things would be set up about how you would communicate on the moon, about how you could put together like a system on the moon. Um, the reason that they, that their base is installed in a series of lava tubes under one of the craters is because that's one of the like easiest ways they've talked about to like set up a base on the moon for to start with the reason that they're under the Daedalus crater in particular on the far side is because that the um one of their main um operations is the radio telescope and that's one of the locations mm-hmm. that they've talked about is probably the best location on the far side for the radio for a radio telescope like i spent a lot of time reading about all these things <laughs> trying to see what made sense and sort of putting together more accurate tech and more accurate extrapolations based on like now, but still like the core of it is this very like 60s, let's go to the moon and save the world (laughs) idea. (laughs) Listen, who doesn't want to go to the moon, right? Um, I mean, people who are afraid of space, I guess Uh, you're valid. Which is, I mean, a question too. I still... (laughs) Um, and this doesn't really affect the show too much, but I still like have friends who I argue with about right now who don't think we should be in space at all. And that's like there are valid arguments for that. Even though I very much think we should be there, there are valid arguments for wanting mm-hmm. our like time and money and energy being focused elsewhere. But I think that yeah. regardless, we still need the stories about it. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that um... – I think that at a wider society in general, right, not in the spheres that, that both of us work in, but um, wider society in general really devalues the power of stories, right? We see this in the, the overvaluation of STEM versus, like, the humanities and where the funding goes in universities, um, which is not into the creative sectors. Um, and, uh, but these stories are, like, what what people use to, like, teach one another about stuff and how to like empower one another and uh, keep ancestral knowledge alive, you know, all of these things. Um, And I think one of the things that is going to always be a very important story is the concept of like outside of the boundaries of earth um, and what that would mean for different people. I think that you're right about that. And there's always the thing too, that the people who do wind up, like making these big scientific discoveries and making these big advances, nine times out of 10, when you talk to me and say, why did you want to get into this field? It's there like, oh, it's because I watched Star Trek or it's because I like read these books when I was a kid. <laughs> like that's a bigger part of fostering the future of humanity than I think tech people like think about later on. Even if it was something mm-hmm. that they personally like got them into it, they don't think about it as much later on. Yeah, no, I've, 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 I've felt that way a lot. Um, let's talk for a moment about ensoyment. Um, <laughs> right, and the, the later decision in, in, in the season to force the entire team to only use cultured proteins from the ensoyment brand. Um, I want to know about, like, your thoughts on branding and corporate ownership. Um, cutting costs to the deficit of employees, something that's clearly occurring to the Theta team, and ultimately the capitalistic treatment of people as disposable, which is yeah. you know, a really central theme to <laughs> Moonbase Theta. 
Yeah, I don't want to get too spoilery um, as far as enjoyment mm-hmm. goes because we actually we just found out I think in the end of season three a very big thing about it. But mm-hmm. um, but it's definitely like being I mean been forced on them as a like further like an element of control over their lives we talk about um and this is the same it's at the same time too as the farm is being shut down and all of the like chances to like grow and create their own food are being like scaled back and they're being forced to do this i admittedly originally threw an enslavement as a joke it's sort of like my soylent green reference mm-hmm. that <laughs> It's, it's it's not different enough that I can claim that there's not some of that in there. But, uh, and, and soy yourself. <laughs> but yeah, it was sort of a running gag. And but it's also like, I mean, that's what the, I mean, the, the, the corporate entities are doing like they're, they're I mean, they treat these um these like little populations on the moon as test bases for anything that they want to. Like we talk early in the season two about them sending up like surveys about particular pieces of entertainment they want response on and things like that. Mm-hmm. And the idea that just they're taking these people who they pretty much own now and mm-hmm. using every, using every part of them as much as they can. So we're looking at you scientists who only use college students yeah. as, as testing subjects. <laughs> Again, extrapolating that way that people take things that originally might have had some decent purpose in them. I mean, like soy-based replacement is something that I was vegetarian for a while. My ex was vegan, and so I was very, like, focused on, like, eating better and, like, finding replacement products. And just even in the few years that I was in that sort of, um, I hate to say lifestyle, in that sort of experience, um, I noticed that like it was taking over, being taken over more and more by the bigger food brands. It was being taken over more and more by like, okay, we don't care if this is actually good for you. We're just um, vegetarians think soy is good for you, so we're going to put soy in everything. And mm-hmm. just sort of extrapolating that too. That um, and I mean, Futurama does it with a bachelor chow thing, and I sort of did it with Instagram. Oh yeah, <laughs> that this is the generic the generic food item that will serve all of your needs. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's like a a marker, right, of of capitalism is all of these things is this like um, uh, forcing small populations who can't fight back for whatever reason to be kind of like your test guinea pigs. Um, yeah. We've seen that with really unethical medical trials, right, um, yeah. in the past. Um, we've we've seen it also with like just like what work different workplaces that big companies uh make their employees do um or use yeah i was gonna say um pn yeah (laughs) we're looking at you amazon (laughs) (laughs) fuck amazon all right now i've gotten that out of my system um Um, one of the important uh, things about season one structure is, uh, at least for, for me, right, and, and you mentioned earlier in this interview, is how much of a puzzle it is, right, for what's happening on Earth and what the world really looks like in, in 2098. Yeah. Um, uh, this is spoilers for anyone listening. This is spoilers for kind of like the results of the puzzle. So if you don't want spoilers, you should skip ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I have a lot of personal investment in this discussion as I'm from Puerto Rico, which is a colonized island that's been bankrupted and destroyed by hedge funds and corporations yeah. uh, for okay. a very long time. 
terrible. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Borders are fake. They always have been, but <laughs> we invented them, yeah. y'all. <laughs> I think that I think that like this this concept right of like nationalities and and um and and border it's in intrinsic tie to borders makes people real like people forget that like we invented borders for like reasons of of money and white supremacy like that's like a thing that we did um do i own an abolish borders t-shirt i maybe um it's fine um no, yeah, I, I loved your decision um, to to situate this like on Earth, to situate it in Brazil, um, especially because, you know, Brazil is one of the places right now that's at the epicenter of climate change issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Which is another right. thing that sort of that we sort of like slide in the background in Moonbase mm-hmm. that um, a lot of these places. And I, again, I spent a lot of time choosing where the major enclaves were going to be based on rising like water levels. There are a mm-hmm. lot of places that major cities are right now that there aren't going to be in 70 years. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like we in um, season three, and this isn't like a spoiler or anything, but in season three, mm-hmm. um, some of our like free zone folks on Earth wind up at the Patrick Air Force Base in Florida. And the reason they wind up there and not um, any of the places you think of more, I mean, more as sort of space-based locations in Florida is because all of those places are going to be underwater. There is no chance that you're Not whatsoever. Those places are going to be inundated. Yeah. Yeah. My parents live on a mountain, so, you know, (laughs) there's that, I guess. (laughs) I think about that sometimes. Um, but it is. No, yeah, it, it, I, I think oh, that that's, and I think that's part of what went into the thinking for the, I mean, for, I mean, for the whole idea of like sort of the enclaves, the city states thing too, is that they had to be able to be constantly on the move because so much of the actual mm-hmm. geography was changing, and mm-hmm. they decided the easiest way to do that was to be like, okay, we're not gonna concentrate on countries anymore. We're gonna take a city. We're gonna use this city until it's done. We're gonna own five hundred other cities in various places on the globe and just move on. Yeah, it's this, it's this parasitic depletion. Yeah, like complete depletion of resources um, and like environmental and all sorts of other things as well, um, until it's just a dead zone. Yeah, Um, which again is why I raised candidates to the ground. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) alas, Canada, we knew you well. Which started out as, uh, as a little yeah. bit as a little bit of a joke because again, like I uh, um, grew up in the states and then moved to Canada as an adult and became a citizen. And I'm again not patriotic, but very like tied to this country now. And so it originally mm-hmm. started sort of as a joke on that, but then it um, became as I moved into particularly season three now, where one of the major characters is um, Ochibwe that um, talking about as well, sort of like a microcosm of how we stole every bit of land and raised it to the ground for the native population. And of, and what we're, we're sort of, again, sort of like, this isn't really a big spoiler, but we find out that that population is the only people who are coming back now to sort of recover the land that is in Canada that was utterly yeah. destroyed, which is what, again, yeah. they've had to do in a million locations over North America. Yep, over and over again. They're like, uh, here's this crappy little corner of land we'll give you back. 
Have you played the game um, when... One sec, let me, let me look up the name to make sure I get it right. When reverse... Uh, one sec. When rivers were trails. I haven't. I've heard of it, but I haven't played it. Yeah. So for people who haven't heard of it, this is a it's a 2D um, point and click like adventure game that is a uh, Oregon Trail like redo by um, Native Americans. Um, so um, it's been it was like developed in collaboration with um, like the Indian Land Tenure Foundation. Everyone um, who contributed is indigenous. There's like over over 30 indigenous contributors and, and people working on it. Um, it's really beautiful. And one of the things that it discusses, right, is all of these things about the allotment acts um, facing uh, the Indian agents, um, hunting, fishing, caretaking for the land. Um, all of these things and how they impact us. And uh, I think it's one of the things that really helped me understand what the land back movement means. Yeah. Um, right. And so I highly recommend that everybody play this game. It is available for free. Um, you can donate, um, but you can just get it for free. I can put, we can put a, a link in the description if anyone is interested. But yeah, this, this discussion of, 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 um, the fact that uh, in season three, these are the people that are coming back to sort of recoup, um, regrow, uh, caretake the land that has been destroyed by the people who stole it from them um, is uh, just made me think of this game. And it's a it's a very prevalent subject that I think doesn't get talked about enough, especially in terms of fiction. Um, so so when we talk about um so let's talk about this this thing with science fiction and its portrayal, right? So I've spoken with other science fiction creators elsewhere. Like I've spoken, I did an interview with the DMs of of the actual play podcast Fun City, who expressed that there is um, a certain level of responsibility to consider climate change in future futuristic Earth related settings, right? Yeah. So what are your thoughts on the portrayal of climate change in science fiction? Uh, Generally, but more specifically, also like right now. I think it's something that, and I, again, I'll, I'll point a figure at myself that I think that it's something that I've used as a plot point a few places, but haven't thought about as deeply as I could. That the overall effects of it, again, I do a lot of research in general. I can't say that I did as much research on like the overall effects of climate change in the future as I, as I could have. I assumed that obviously, I mean, the easy, easy thing to assume is that we're going to be losing big chunks of coastland, but um, not thinking about it in general. I think about um, my friend Lee Shackelford's show Relativity in particular, which did a really nice job of this. It's set um, at, in, at the Arecibo um, um, station. Yeah, exactly. Station. I, R.I.P. Yeah, seriously. But and as a part of being in that like climate, particularly that there are constantly windstorms and and huge rainstorms just devastating the the area. And again, like sort of like really thought in in the long term about what it would be like on an earth that's honestly in his story is being devastated in the future. 
by the effects of mm -hmm. climate change. And so I haven't seen a lot of really like in-depth exploration of it like that. I've seen a lot of people do it kind of the way I did, where they're like, okay, we're going to throw that in as a background. But, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I thought about it and I like to assume that there's at least some still some hope for people too. And I like to think that whatever does happen, we can't, we can't, we can't turn back climate change at this point, but I like to think that we're at least going to find some ways to like live within it better than we are right now. Yeah. And hopefully find some way to like make it not get worse. Yeah. Like I like to think too, <laughs> that what little effect we still have over capitalism is in making decisions to focus our spending and focus our attention on big issues and try and getting mm -hmm. corporations to pay attention because they know they can sell that to us. And so I like to think that at some point, if we can manage to dial climate change back a bit, that's how we're going to do it, is by finding mm -hmm. a way to make it profitable for them. Ah, capitalism. It is, and it sucks. I can't sucks, I can't explain I would, to you why you need to care about other people. Yeah. <laughs> it's it sucks and I really want to see it all burn down, but until we can get to the point where I feel like people would all burn it down, which unfortunately we're not at yet. No. Then I feel like we have to still like try to pick points to argue on. Yep, pretty much. Um, I just have a couple of more questions, yeah. uh, some lighter, funner ones. So our line producer, uh, Anne, wants to know what your favorite dog breed is. Oh, that's a good question. Because because um, <laughs> we only have cats. We've I've always only had cats, mm. except, except I had a beagle when I was a little kid. Um, I've always only had cats. And my wife and I talk about that someday when our cats aren't quite as big a pain in the ass as they are right now. <laughs> and when we have a bigger house that we could actually have a dog and we talk about having like a pug or something like that. So that's definitely up there. But I don't know as far as a favorite, if I could choose like all doggos are good doggos to me. It's true. They're all good dogs, Brent. They are. I can't, I can't restrict my love to one type of dog. I'm sorry. That's valid. <laughs> Um, and finally, um, what is it about monkeys? <laughs> I have always had this question and I now finally have the chance to ask you. That is fair. <laughs> and I mean, please explain. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. And I'll get to the name of the company in a second because the company is actually referenced. But um, mm -hmm. monkeys in general have always just sort of been a thing for me. And I don't know why I had like a little stuffed monkey that I that I had when I was a little kid. That was one of my favorite toys. He was like a beanbag and I would grab him by his tail and whap him around and make him a little like flail to attack my sisters with and stuff. But um, <laughs> monkeys are always funny i guess like they're always like a big element of comedy monkeys were of course like a big element of like early space travel um but the reason why it's the name of the company is a, a very douglas adams reference because um zaphod beeblebrox calls arthur monkey man all the time in like the his Tiger books that's like his favorite insult for earthlings and so <laughs> when we decided to name a company we called it monkey man productions all right. Well, with that, thank you so much for coming on to um, RDR. We, I really enjoyed this conversation with you. It was really great. Thanks again. I really enjoyed it, too. If you liked what you heard, 
You can support Moonbase Theta Out and all of Monkey Man Productions' other podcasts at patreon.com slash monkeymanproductions. Come back next week for our showcase feature of the romance podcast, Me and AU. Radio Drama Revival runs on futuristic light rails that border on teleportation and free public transport. If you'd like to help keep us afloat and featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And now we bring you our moment of Anne. Probably. There is no moment of Anne this week. Only a moment of snails. That means it's time for the credits. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, the Klitskani Indian tribe, the Kaolitz Indian tribe, and the Atfalati tribe. Colonizers named this place Beaverton, Oregon. If you are looking for ways to support or donate to Native communities, Nicholas Gollanin and First Light Alaska are running a fundraiser to benefit the land back movement. All funds raised go to acquisition and land management funds of the Native American Land Conservancy to repatriate land back to indigenous communities. This is not about removing people from the land. This is about recognition and respect for indigenous sovereignty and knowledge about ecosystems, climate, and caretaking of the land. You can donate to this initiative at www.gofundme.com f slash landback. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Decks by the band Kylo Kaz. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our audio producer is Will Williams. Our marketing manager and line producer is Ann Baird. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editor is Rashika Rao. Our associate marketing manager is Jillian Schrager. Our transcriptionist is Katie Yeomans. Our audio consultant is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhouse and David Randstrom. Our mascot is Ticker Tape the goat. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins. This has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers, welcome. Welcome.